Hey, Pastor John here. I just want to thank you for joining us for our Easter Sunday service. Uh, today's sermon is called, He Didn't Have To, and it talks about all of the things that Jesus didn't have to do, but he did, and we'll find out why as well. So let's join the service now that's already in progress. We praise his holy name. And as we prepare for Pastor John's message, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians. And we can see what Paul meant and what he was writing about and the importance of the events that happened over 2,000 years ago. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Praise be to our holy God. May his reading of his word bless our hearts and convict us. I'm going to turn to John chapter 1. Whatever form you brought your Bible in, keep it open. We're going to go through several different passages today. I promise to have you out by dinner time. The, uh, while you're finding John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I, I just want to share with you that I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. I left when I was 19 years old. I met Kelly down in Orlando. We got married, came up here. And then we would go back to Youngstown several times a year to see my folks. And after my dad passed away, we went even more often to see my mom. And it didn't matter where I was in my career. My mom, before I would leave the house, would always hand me $20 for gas. She'd say, I want you to have some money for gas on the way home. And it bothered me for a while. Yeah, I would go, no, Mom, I don't need it. I would open my wallet and show her all the cash I had. And she would go, I just, I just feel better if you have $20 for gas. Now, in the wisdom of my wife, she said, why don't you just start accepting the $20 rather than arguing with her about it? And so I followed that, and things went a lot easier. But I would say to my mother every time, Mom, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. And it just began to become a reminder to me that... As human beings, we're constantly doing things that we don't really have to do. Why do we do them? Why do we do them? We're going to look at some things this morning about things that 
Christ didn't have to do. Now, last week we talked about three tears, the three times that Jesus cried, uh, and showing us that he was there for us in, in our time of need, that he was there to comfort us, that he, he was aware of the pain and the suffering and the grief and the agony that we go through at times, and that he cared for us. He cared for our very souls. So we're going to look at some of the things that he's done that he didn't have to do today. Now, now I know that all about prophecy and fulfilling it and, and Jesus being obedient, but I just want, I want us to start thinking because I'm not sure that we take time to meditate on everything that God did in order for us to be able to congregate here on Easter morning and remember the resurrection. I don't think we take time to ponder what Jesus did. And, and if, if we take time to think about it, it can be a little overwhelming. You go, well, wait a minute, what's really going on here? It can, it can be, we can be awestruck with this, and we should be. And then, then we're going to take a look at not only these things that he didn't have to do, but why he did them. Why, why go through everything that he went through? When, when you stop to think about it, in the grand scheme of things, bigger than our story and the story of the cosmos, God didn't really have to do any of this stuff. He didn't have to do any of it. It's unnecessary. Unless, unless there is some good reason that he did it. So we're going to take a look at nine of the things Jesus didn't have to do. And that first one is right there in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And so I'm going to read a lot of scripture for you so we can have context. Uh, but the first thing that, that Jesus didn't have to do was he didn't have to take on flesh. Okay? John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. So we, we have this picture of the, the, the living God and the word that he utters and how everything comes through this word and everything that we're familiar with is created in him and through him the supernatural creator of all things, does something almost totally unthinkable. And that's down in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Ponder this. God put on flesh. Not only, not only did he put on flesh, he came down here and lived among us. Lived the life of a little boy in first century Palestine. Grew up and lived among us. Ate our food, breathed our air, drank our water, did his studies as a young boy, played with the other kids in the neighborhood, we think, did his chores, and when he was old enough, he went and got a job. He did all the things we would do. He lived like we live. And somewhere, somewhere around 30 years old or so, 
He enters into ministry. He takes on the ministry. We're familiar with the baptism and comes out of the water and uh, the Spirit comes down and God utters, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And at, at first, people are awed by this. He's teaching with incredible authority. He's doing signs and wonders. Miracles are pouring from him. People are getting healed. Demons are getting thrown out. Everything's pretty neat right there at the beginning. But things don't go quite as well as you would think if people understood that God had come down and was walking among us. I, I mean, you would think that if people saw these things, they would go, oh, I can't believe this is happening. Runs into opposition. And the fact of the matter is that he didn't have to take on flesh, he didn't have to come in a body. He didn't have to live. He didn't have to grow up. I mean, he could have came down fully formed as, a, as a, an adult male. So he didn't have to do all this. So there comes at the, the, the near the end of his ministry. Everything has not gone well. I mean, the religious leaders have opposed him. There's friction all over the place. He's had thousands and thousands of people following him, and the teaching gets a little rough. And everybody leaves. And in the end, he's with the twelve. And so, here's the other thing he didn't have to do. He didn't have to humble himself. Watch this. Now, this happens just before the Last Supper. John chapter 13. You can turn there in your Bible or you can scroll there, whichever form you're using your Bible in. John chapter 13, 1 through 5. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So the first thing we, we see is that Jesus knows. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows everything that's happening around him. And he knows where he's going, and he knows how he's going to get there. But the thing that you need to understand here is he knows about Judas. He knows. And so in verse 4 it says, He rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now in the middle of all this, Peter does what Peter always does. He's going to take control of the situation and tell Jesus how things really should go. And uh, Jesus kind of rebukes Peter. He's not nasty about it, but Peter kind of sees what's going on, and, and so yeah, it, things get resolved between him and Peter. But the moment, the moment we're talking about the washing of feet it ends with an alarming note. Verse 11, For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. The God of all creation, the, the one who spoke the universe into existence. Bow down and wash the feet. Not just of the 11 who were following him, 
but of the one who would betray him. He humbled himself, even though he knew who it was who was going to betray him. Now, I don't know if I have that kind of humility, because I'd want to stand there in front of Judas and go, yeah, I'm not washing your feet. These guys over here are okay, but I'm not so sure about you. I know some things about you you think I don't know. That would be my human reaction. But we're talking about God. He knew what the betrayal would mean. He didn't have to do it, but he did it just to show you and me what humility looks like. What it looks like to serve. What it means to be godly. Now here's here's another thing that he didn't have to do. He didn't have to carry through. He didn't have to allow himself to be betrayed. Again, we're at the Last Supper, John 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, so he knows what's coming. Uh, He's not looking forward to it. He's walking through it step by step. He's troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, Jesus knows who it is, but they don't. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter, I mean, it's always Peter, isn't it? Yeah, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And and so, you know, what happened was Peter went, hey, you're you're close to him. Find out who he's talking about. See see what's going on here. And and no doubt, knowing knowing how impulsive Peter was, he was going to take care of the situation. Well, I'll take care of that. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? But Jesus doesn't give a name. In verse 26, he says, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus fellowships with his betrayer. He extends an act of grace and mercy to Judas. When he knows what's going to happen, didn't have to do it, could have stopped him. I I mean, he could have stood up and said, it's that guy over there, and immediately the other 11 would have shown allegiance to him. Jesus could have felt vindicated in front of his friends. He could have felt justified in pointing them out. Could have felt maybe a little bit more righteous in that everybody knew who the bad guy was and everybody knew who was going to go against him. Could have vented his anger. Could have smote Judas. You know how much I love that word. Fire coming down out of the sky. And everybody went, yeah, Jesus! That'll show people who oppose you. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it. There's more. Didn't allow, have to allow himself to be arrested. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse, starting with verse 47. Now, now they're in the garden. And verse 47 says... While he was still speaking, Judas 
came one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And they came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. It's not a gesture of respect. It's a gesture of derision. They're not, they don't really think he's a teacher. In verse 50, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, if we take a look at the Gospel of John, we find out that this was who? Peter. <laughs> it's Peter. Peter's going to defend Christ. And, and we need to think about that for a second, because I, I think we all find ourselves in life at times where we believe that God needs our help. Things aren't going quite the way that we think they should go. Peter certainly doesn't want him to go this way, so Peter's going to take action. Well, nobody's doing anything, so I'll do this. Somebody's got to do something. How often have you heard that? The results are startling. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, This is to his captors. Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me then. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the thousands are gone. All the people that were in that procession and the Jerusalem are gone. And the twelve, the twelve faithful, one of them has betrayed him, and the other eleven run for their lives. It's clear that Jesus could have avoided being taken. He says that much, yet he went along willingly. There's no fight, no fuss. Actually, what he says is, why didn't you do this sooner? Why'd you wait so long? He even, he even heals one of those that come against him. I have frequently wondered what that guy thought. I mean, Peter cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, don't do that. That's not what I came for. And he picks the ear up and he heals the man. You think that for one moment he might have went, maybe we're making a mistake? <laughs> Heals one of those that have come to chain him. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to put himself on trial. He didn't have to allow him to 
to, to judge him. Matthew 26, starting with verse 57. Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, and they might put him to death, but he f- they found none, and through many false witnesses came forward, at least two came forward, and said, this man I may, said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, the high priest was like, okay, that's what we needed. Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living of God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. He's not looking to find out whether or not Jesus is the Christ. He's looking to find out whether or not Jesus claims to be the Christ. And Jesus said to him, you've said that, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes, he's grieving, and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And the answer, the, the, the court answered, He deserves death. Wow. That's pretty harsh. Ain't over. They spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now they're making fun of him. Sent him to death, and they're mocking him. And this, this is, again, we have to understand the context here. This is beyond imagination. They are putting God on trial. They're examining God. It's the height of arrogance. We ever do that? We ever look around us and say, I don't like the way this is going? I mean, we, it's very easy to be Peter when we don't like the way things are going. We jump in and do something. Very easy to analyze what's happening in our lives and think that maybe God has missed something or isn't aware of our real situation. These people put God on trial and find Him guilty. And then there's this total degradation, total humiliation, and Jesus allows it to happen. He doesn't stop it. And and then things get even worse. Matthew 27, starting in verse 27, Jesus allows himself to be beaten and tortured. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. Now this is a macabre crown. And, you know, if you haven't seen a crown of thorns, you need to look at one one time because this is not a rose bush with little things that if it sticks to your thumb, it hurts. The thorns on this crown are two, three, four inches long. 
So they, they give him a crown and they give him a scepter and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And he went. He went. But it's not over yet. He didn't have to allow himself to be, to be nailed to a cross. Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. He needed help because he'd literally been flayed alive. Couldn't carry the cross. Didn't have, didn't have the, the strength to do it. So they find somebody else to do it. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. Now, that would have acted as a sedative, as a painkiller. Jesus was having none of that. He was going to experience everything that they threw at him. And then when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They're watching him die. They put him up on a cross and then they sat and watched him as they mock him, as they humiliate him even further. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. Now, these are the, po- the folks of the city. They're making fun of him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You're the Son of God come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes with the elders mocked him, saying, hey, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. What an ironic taunt. Because they say, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. And he's about to do exactly that and they still don't believe. He trusts in God, they say. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And what they didn't know was that God had not come down to deliver himself. He'd come to deliver them. And they were rejecting it. He was there to deliver them if only they would listen to what he said. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Even the criminals despise. Now we know one of them ultimately recognizes who he is and has the promise of paradise. So now, at this particular point, the prophecy that we saw in Isaiah 53 is complete. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So much for the blue-eyed, smiling Jesus. But you know what? The ordeal's not over yet. There's still two things he didn't have to do. Here's the first one. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to die. Matthew 27, 45. 
Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait. He said, wait, don't give him something to drink. Wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. God. Turn to John chapter 20. Because there's one more thing that he didn't have to do. Starting with verse 1. Now it's Sunday morning. The disciples are filtering out. They go to the tomb and they find it what? Empty. It's an empty tomb. They're not quite sure what to make of that. It's a little overwhelming for them. Should be overwhelming for us too. They're stunned. Maybe they're afraid. They don't know what's going on now. And, you know, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and Sanhedrin are now looking for the disciples. And in verse 10 it says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know it was Jesus. There's something different about him. We don't know what it is. But she doesn't recognize him at first. Maybe this is so far beyond her imagination, her brain can't connect the dots. We don't know what's going on here, but there's something miraculous happening. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She gets it. She sees. You see, this is the last thing that Jesus didn't have to do. He didn't have to come back. Would you have come back after all that? This is, this is beyond imagination. This is so awesome that we have a hard time absorbing it. He took on the sins of the world. He became sin for us. And He died. And three days later, He rises up out of the grave. And we learn that not only was He God, but He gives us victory over sin and over death. He says, those things can't hold me back. Do you understand? Then if you believe in me, you can have that same victory over sin and death. So here are the things that Jesus didn't have to do. 
He didn't have to take on flesh. He didn't have to humble himself. He didn't have to be betrayed. He didn't have to allow himself to be arrested or put on trial or to be beaten and tortured. He didn't have to allow himself to be nailed to a cross or to die. And he didn't have to come back. God could have just said, you know what, we're going to start over again. And we're going to keep starting over until these people get it right. God knows that we would never get it right. That we needed somebody to come down and get it right for us. Why did he do that? Why did he take all that? Why did God absorb all of our anger and our hate and our malice and our disobedience and our rebellion and our disrespect? Why did he do it? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. My mother gave me $20 for gas because she loved me. And I got to tell you something, as much as my mother loved me, the love that my mother had for me is incomparable to the love that Jesus has for you and me. Can't hold a candle to it. He shed His blood. He shed that powerful, cleansing, restoring, regenerating, renewing, precious blood because He loves, he loves you and me. And all He asks us is that we confess our sins and believe in Him. And He came back. Came back just to prove that He was exactly who He said He was. He came back so that we could experience Him. So that His presence and His power could pour through us into other people. And that we could take opportunities like today to say, you know, He came back. For all this, we can sing this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood supplied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. Lisa. a wretch I remember who I was I was lost I was blind I was running out of time sin separated the breach was far too wide but from the far side of the chasm 
You held me in your sight So you made a way Across the great divide Left behind heaven's throne To build it here inside And there at the cross You paid the debt I owed Broke my chains, freed my soul For the first time I have hope Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied Thank you, Jesus, it has saved my life Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my soul Brought me from the darkness into glorious light You took my place, laid inside that tomb of sin You were buried for three days but then you walked right out again And now death has no sting And life has no end For I have been reborn By the blood of the Lamb Thank you, Jesus, for the blood of Wash me white Thank you, Jesus You have saved my life Brought me from the darkness Into glorious light There is nothing stronger Than the wonder-working power Of the blood Glory to 
give you thanks. Thanks for doing what you did not have to do. Thanks for taking the very worst that we had to offer and overcoming. For overcoming sin, for overcoming hate, for overcoming anger, overcoming even death. In our thanks, Lord, we offer up ourselves to become vessels of appreciation, grace, and mercy. But we confess in this quiet moment that we need Your help. We need Your presence. We need Your power. Pour them into us, Father, and through us, that Your presence may be seen and felt in us, Your body, Your family, Your church, Your children. Let us be reminders to the world of the resurrection of Your Son, ever portraying His offer of redemption, His offer of grace, and His offer of love. We give You thanks, Father. And we pray this in the precious, holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. He is risen. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for joining us online. Pastor John here again to tell you that we really appreciate your spending some time with us. Love to hear from you. You can email me personally with your prayer requests or comments at kavakas, K-U-V-A-K-A-S, at gmail.com. You can find us on YouTube at WBFVA. We're also on Facebook at Morton Bible Fellowship. And we have a worldwide website as well, WBFVA.org. I hope today blessed you. I hope you have a blessed week. God bless you. We hope to see you again.